0: Well, good morning. It is wonderful to be here worshiping with all of you this morning. I look out and I see a number of faces that I do not recognize. And if you're visiting with us, we're very grateful to the Lord that He's brought you here to to be with us, to worship with us, and give us the chance to meet you. Now, you can open with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. If you are visiting, I'll tell you that uh, we have been for some time now working through the gospel of mark as a congregation our pastor bobby has been leading us through that we've stopped for the last two weeks and this will be the final uh, the third week that we've paused looking at mark in order to take some time to hear jesus pray in what we have historically called the high priestly prayer of jesus here in john chapter 17. Um, this is a prayer from beginning to end as we're going to see this morning that is full of the glory of Jesus Christ. He began in verse 1, saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. And with those words, he declared the framework of his entire prayer. And up to this point now, he has spent 19 verses fleshing that out for us, telling us how the request of glory for the Son from the Father, for the glory of the Father, um, serves as the eternal plan that the Godhead has been, been intending. He's described to us how he has been accomplishing this, this plan of glorifying the Father as the Father has given him authority. He has manifested the person of God as he's walked the earth. He's declared God's plan of redemption through grace, by trusting in the finished work of Christ. He has provided himself out to those listening as the lamb to be slaughtered. We've also heard him say that he has shared with us the very words of God. He's only spoken what the Father has told him to speak. And as he's walked in these ways, he has served as the manifestation of God to sinful men. We're going to begin reading in just a moment in verse 20. We're going to be studying together verses 20 through 26. And you'll see when we begin to read that uh, the prayer, this prayer that began with Jesus' glory, is going to end with His glory. Because that's what this has all been about. But as we come to the end of His prayer here, what we need to notice this morning in particular is that we find Him praying now for us in a couple of specific ways. We find that His glory is achieved through two specific requests that He's going to make for us. In verses 20 through 23... He's going to pray for us for a unity that vindicates his claims, a unity that proves Jesus to be God-sent as he has claimed to be. And we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning looking at at that request that he makes, both looking at the unity that he prays for us, what is this unity, uh, how are we to understand it, and then looking at how that unity serves that purpose of vindicating Jesus claims. The second thing that he prays for us here that we're going to see in verses 24 through 26, he prays that the Father's love for the Son would be shared with you and me. There is a great deal in and under what he is praying for us here. And we will come out of this this morning with a profound sense of the love that Jesus has for his people and of the love that the Father has for for us in sending Jesus in this way. So if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read from God's Word? John 17, verses 20 through 26. Jesus continues his prayer in this way I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their Word, that they may all be one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. And be seated. Father, we bow before you now. We thank you for the honor you have given us, allowing us to worship you through singing, through praying together, through fellowshipping together. And Lord, the way that you have loved us in giving us a heart that has affection for you and for each other. Lord, you you have transformed us in your Son. These affections that we have for you, for your word, for your people, these are not natural to us. And we thank you for them. Lord, you have caused us to hunger for your word. And as we open it now, we tremble before it. We ask that you give us humble hearts before your word, eager to receive it and to be changed by it. And Lord, we thank you for it. Guard us in our thinking now, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, uh, you, may have, you, you may be able to tell here as we come into verse 20, this shift that happens. We, we talked last week about how uh, in the section prior, he's really been doing a bit of debriefing, sort of uh, laying out exactly what he has done as the God-man sent to reveal the glory of God. And how he has done it. But as we come into verse 20, we we hear him very quickly begin to shift toward direct prayer for his people. Uh, And the first prayer that we need to see here is we need to hear him pray for us in terms of our unity, our unity um, achieving the end of vindicating Jesus in his claims. It's pretty easy for us to see that he's asking for our unity. Look at verse 20 again. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that, so here is what he is praying for us, not only for the disciples, but for us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And in verse 22, he continues this. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Why? Why? that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now we have to notice, though, that he speaks of our unity in two different senses. He is praying for our unity with each other, that we may be one, that we may become perfectly one, verse 23. He is also praying for our unity with God. Verse 21, that they may be in us. I think the first is a little bit simpler for us to deal with, the unity with each other. So let's look at that for a few minutes, and then uh, before we get into what he is asking for when he asks for us to be united to God. He does begin by speaking of our unity with each other. Uh, And we find that that's something of a theme in the New Testament. Uh, Often, the unity that we have as the body of Christ with one another, unity that spans all sorts of boundaries that Do not naturally get uh, broken down. Uh, Tongue, tribe, nation, ethnicity, these sorts of boundaries that the gospel is able to supersede. Uh, The New Testament over and over again celebrates the fact that the gospel is effective to that degree. The gospel is able to bring together a people united for Him. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2 very clearly. In verses 13 and 14, Paul writes, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, speaking there of the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You may or may not be aware what a deep and high wall that was, the wall separating Jew and Gentile if the gospel can bring Jew and Gentile together. There is no group of people on this earth that the gospel cannot unite around the common cause of the glory of Christ. This is celebrated again in Galatians 3, verse 28. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This unity among people, among the people of God is celebrated Time and time again. Now, in John 17 here, though, there's something we need to notice about this unity. And that is that in both verse 21 and 22, did you notice? The emphasis is that our unity would bear a comparison to the unity in the Father and Son. Did you notice that? Look at verse 21 again. It said that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one. So there's something about the unity between the Father and Son that Jesus is asking uh, would characterize our unity with one another. And in this sense, we, we should think of, the, in particular, the unity between Father and Son in terms of purpose. There are other elements in which the Father and Son are united. We'll talk about that more a little bit later as well. They are one in essence, of one substance, these sorts of unities that we have a hard time even understanding. That's not what he is asking for for us, that we would begin to be one in substance somehow. He's speaking of the unity of purpose between the Father and the Son, the unity he's been praying about in uh, throughout this chapter. If you remember two weeks ago in the first five verses, he laid out that his request for the Father to bring him glory was simply an expression of their eternal plan together, that they have been been eternally unified in terms of this purpose. And in just that way, he's praying for us to be united together. We are united in a common purpose, and in fact the same purpose that they are united in. The church is a group of people, diverse, supernaturally brought together, and brought together around a unity of purpose, which is the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the the purpose that brings us together. One man wrote about this, and he said it uh, very effectively. He said, This unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator. Now, there is a type of unity out there that goes that route. And says, here's what the church should be. Jesus prays for us to be unified. So let's just find the most surface level, watered down uh, truth that we could be unified about. And let's, let's rally around that. So as many of us can hold hands as possible. We can get along. No arguments. Um, and the question is, is that the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for here? That's why it's so important for us to recognize that he couches our unity with each other in a likeness to the unity that the Father and Son, uh, in which they are unified in terms of their purpose. Our unity is not surface level. Our unity is as deep as the truth of the gospel. We are united around the common knowledge of salvation in Christ alone. And I think for us, uh, that is fairly straightforward for us to grab a hold of. We we, we know that we display uh, that kind of unity as we unite around a common understanding of the gospel, and as the love of God is poured out through us into each other's lives, we bear each other's burdens. Uh, In those ways, we display the love of God. We display the unity that Jesus is calling us to here. Um, And even in that human way, that unity serves this purpose that Jesus is praying about, of vindicating his claims to have come from God. But there's something else that he says about unity here. That is a little bit more complicated for us to understand. He doesn't just speak of our unity with each other. He also speaks in terms of believers being united to God himself. Let's take a few minutes to try to understand this. First, let's see it again. Verse 23, uh, before he says, you in me, he prays uh, that he would be in us. He says, I in them. He is is praying to the effect that he would be in us. And he repeats that in verse 26. But more difficult than that is verse 21. We'll go back there. Uh, He says, That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, again, we have to be very careful how we think about this. Um, as the Father is in the Son, as the Son is in the Father, uh, that that we would be in them in that way. What is he talking about here? And again, we have to, from the beginning, take one possibility off the table completely. He is not talking here about some sort of an ontological unity. He's not praying that when we um, are perfected, we would go to heaven and we would merge with the with the being of God somehow and become one with him. There's, not only is that impossible, that is blasphemous, right? That is not at all what he's talking about here, some sort of ontology. So we take that off the table. Uh, what is he saying then? He is praying for something in terms of our unity with Father, with Son, with Holy Spirit. And trying to ask that question just in verse 21 is a little bit confusing And I just wish, you know, it would be much less confusing for us here if we found that Jesus had spoken previously about realities of being in the Father and the Father being in the Son. If only, you know, I'm a little disappointed in him. If only he had talked about those things before this elsewhere and maybe fleshed it out a little bit more, given more detail about what it means for the Father to be in him and him to be in the Father, then maybe we would be able to understand what he is describing here. Do you see where I'm? Going with this already. I'm not actually disappointed in Jesus. Um, I'm a little disappointed in us. If we come to a place like verse 21. Feel a sense of confusion. And then move on. Or uh, act as if it it doesn't make any sense. Maybe what's actually happening. Is that uh, he's speaking about a reality. That he's already talked about previously. And he's expecting us to, to do some work. To go back and see, maybe to read the entire book before we get to chapter 17. Before we just decide on what this means, we have to ask the harder questions. And what we find is that, uh, in fact, Jesus has done exactly that. And he's done that in the Gospel of John. Already many times in this Gospel, he has spoken in terms of being in the Father and the Father being in him, and he's explained it a little bit. So maybe if we go back there and we see what he has said before this, we'll gain some insight into what he's asking for for us. Because remember, he says he's praying that we would be in him as he is in the Father, and the Father is in the Son. So let's go back and see what he's said about that and what that means, and it'll help us to understand here. And there are two chapters in particular that he gets into this, John chapter 10 and John chapter 14. especially John chapter 14. But let's start by reading something in John chapter 10. Starting in verse 37... And what we're going to do here is we're going to look through a few of these passages and just begin to build a bit of a case for ourselves. Asking the question, what does it mean when Jesus says the Father is in him and he is in the Father? John 10, 37. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. All right, and stop there. So we read here that the, Father, the Son's being in the Father and the Father's being in the Son. Here's one thing we learn from these verses. That is manifested as Jesus does the works of the Father. You see that? This oneness between them, whatever it is that is meant, is manifested as Jesus does the Father's works. Okay, good. Good to know. Uh, Go up to John chapter 14. There are three passages here in this chapter that we need to see. This chapter is is just amazing. In the statements that Jesus makes here. John 14, first we'll read verses 10, 11, and 12. He's speaking to his disciples here. And he says this. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So yet again, he makes a similar connection when it comes to this unity he's describing with the Father. He said in chapter 10 that that looks like him doing the works of his Father. Here he says that he speaks the Father's words as a result of this unity. He says the Father dwells in him. And the way that that's pictured in verse 10 is to say that as Jesus is working, actually the, the Father is doing his works in Jesus. Jesus just an incredible statement. I do not speak on my own authority, but rather the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now does he mean that he's not working? Of course he's working. But he's saying such is this unity that as I am working, what's also happening is the Father is working in me. He's doing his works. And then in verse 12, he actually draws us into this. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me, and we would almost think given the flow Um, That that he would say, whoever believes in me uh, will be in me. But instead of that, he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. You know, the very works that he just said as he's doing them, the Father is working in him. Those works. Whoever believes in me, uh, he will do the works that I do. And then this bombshell of a statement that we don't have time for. uh, Greater works than these will he do. (laughs) Because I am going to the Father. You get the sense that this unity between Father and Son, as we draw in through participation in His works, there's something profound and effective that is happening to us. Now let's keep going. Go down to verse 18. Verses 18 through 21 in this chapter. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Wow. Verse 21. Notice where he immediately goes now. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 19, because I live, you also will live. He's speaking of our life in terms of it being wrapped up into his life. In verse 20, in that day, the day that you see me and know that you are in me, that your life is in mine, you will know that I am in my Father, you'll know that you are in me, you'll know that I am in you. And then in verse 21, he suddenly connects that oneness, that unity to the concept of obedience. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who, and again, I would expect him to say, he it is who dwells in me. But it begins to blend the idea of unity, oneness with him, now with the idea of love. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And let me read the rest of verse 21 and think about how well it would fit for him to speak in terms of unity here. Uh, He who loves me will be loved by my Father. He who uh, is in me will be in my, my Father will be in them. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. You notice that he almost seems to connect the ideas of being in Christ with loving Christ. And then finally, verses 23 and 24. this is the last place before we go back to John 17. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Man, these themes. Again, you think of John 17, 21, the statement that he prays that we would be in them. How much easier is it to to try to wrestle with that, having heard what he's already spoken about these realities? He did not leave us there to guess at this mysterious unity that he was praying for us. So let's put all of this together now. Let's come back to John 17. He, pray, he prays in verse 21, Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they too might be in us. Here's what he means by that. Just as the Father is active in and through the Son, so, also the triune God is to be active in and through believers. This is what he is praying for us. Remember, he spoke of his own work as he reflected on this unity with his Father. And he said of his work, The Father who dwells in me does his work. Again, that didn't mean that Jesus was not working, but such is the unity between them that the Father is seen to be active in the Son, working through the Son. So that he can make such a statement. And what we're finding in this prayer is that as Christians, we are being drawn into that unity. Such is the unity that your Savior purchased for you. That as the Father is active in and through the Son, God is now said to be active in and through us. This is most often spoken of in terms of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in us, working in us, who, by the way, is also called the Spirit of Christ. In places like Romans 8, 1 Peter 1.11, Galatians 4.6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. This is what's happening to us. God is, has drawn us near in Christ to the degree that, as he puts it in his prayer, just as the Son is in the Father in this sense, not ontologically, nothing blasphemous or, or, or metaphysical in that way, but in this sense, just as the Father is in the Son, he prays that we would be in him. And we sit down at the end of the day and we, we think about As a Christian, what's happened that day? We think about that situation that we responded to or the thought, um, the way we thought through that conflict, um, the response that we spoke in that setting that accorded with wisdom that wasn't of this world. I just reacted in a way. I just spoke in a way. I just thought in a way that reflected supernatural wisdom. As I'm growing in Christ, and I'm, I'm actually able to put sin to death, not perfectly, but I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think according to a wisdom that is of God and not of this world. And we sit there at night, we think about that, and we can sort of look at ourselves in the mirror and go, what, what is happening to me? Who, who am I? What's going on? And Jesus says here, I'll tell you what's going on. My prayer is being answered in you. You are becoming one with us. In this true sense of God being seen to be active in and through you. That's what's happening to you. It would be terrifying if it were not so wonderful. And I'm sorry, but as you think about that reality... If you're a believer this morning and you've seen evidence of the spirit of God at work in you, do you think about what that actually means is happening in you. The temporary details of your life situation now just got a lot smaller. Okay? I didn't say that they got less painful. I didn't say that they became less significant. They are painful, and they are significant, but I did say that they got a lot smaller. You name it. Name the details, important details about your life, and hold them up here to this, and see how they fail to define, to, to display uh, the value of what's happening in your life when compared to the notion that God himself is at work in and through you. Surely we are supposed to let that expand our perspective. The perspective through which we view our circumstances. Surely that's the sort of perspective that Paul is pointing us to in that famous passage in 2 Corinthians 4. Verses 16 and 17 when he said, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Surely that's the perspective that a a time spent meditating on the reality of God in me is able to accomplish. This union with the triune God is seen that way in us. As he accomplishes his purposes in us and we see his work being done through us. Could anything be more important than that? Well, as it turns out, yes. (laughs) Yes. Something could be more important than that. And I say that because this request he makes for our unity, as of significant as it is, when we look back at his prayer, we find he's not praying for our unity for its own sake. Our unity he prays for is a means to an end. One man, Andreas Kostenberger, wrote just a little comment about this. That is, I love little one, uh, what do you call those sort of uh, uh, catchphrases that you can hold on to. He says, Believer's unity is neither self-generated nor an end in itself. And that is so worth noticing here. Our unity with God serves to vindicate his claim. Our unity with God and the evidence of that worked out in us vindicates Jesus' claim that he is from God, that he is God-sent. Look again at verse 21. We hear the unity, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that, here it is, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the purpose that he intends for our unity. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Here it is again. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our unity as seen with each other. Our unity enlivened through the power of God at work in us is supposed to serve as a platform that confirms who Jesus claimed to be. And there are two points that I want to draw your attention to on this before we move to the second prayer that he gives for us. You might have noticed that there's a little bit of a different wording in verse 21 and verse 23. Now look, let's just take a second. I know this is specific, but look very carefully here. All right, Look at verse 21. What was the purpose given there? He said, that the world might believe that you have sent me. You see that? That's that belief word, pistuo, this is faith. There is very clearly here um, an evangelistic appeal that God is making to his sheep through the sight of our unity. Those that he intends to save uh, that are still lost in a world of darkness as the gospel reaches them. They see the light of Christ. One of the things that they see is they look at the church and they see the unity of love in his people and those sorts of sites help in leading them to the conviction that Jesus truly does have the words of eternal life exactly as he claimed and Jesus has said as much many times before most of the time when he speaks of our unity being put on display in this sort of way what he speaks about is is uh, he speaks in terms of our love for each other not just unity but specifically love And remember those passages in John 14, how much unity and love seemed to be interchangeable. John 13, 35, he said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. He speaks in Matthew chapter 5 of us serving as a city on a hill. You remember that? If you're from my generation, you're probably hearing... The band Third Day right now singing and singing their song of Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Shine your light before all men that they might see your works. And then praise your Father up in heaven. Right? That's their words. That's not a bad uh, wording for Matthew chapter 5 there. This is the intent that he has had for us. As our light is put on display that men would see it. And not just marvel at it. But turn and praise the Father up in heaven. And so when he prays for our unity in verse 21, he prays to the end that that the world might believe, that these that he has might believe as a result of seeing it. But that goal is described a little bit differently in verse 23. Look at at the purpose statement there. He said that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now the idea has changed just a little bit from believe to know. And with that change, the emphasis changes as well. Now in verse 23, we don't have explicitly there the goal of evangelism. We have the goal of vindication. God's purpose is that our unity would be put on display and that when it is seen, there would be knowledge that Jesus was right in what he claimed. There will be vindication for our Savior. And get this. Christ in you, Christ at work in you, will get to serve as a part of that vindication. As you grow in your sanctification, as you begin slowly in that path uh, on the perfect timing of God to grow in Christ-likeness, Christ's claims are being proven true. He claimed a lot of things, didn't he? He claimed to be the true vine. He claimed that anyone who was connected to him is connected to the true vine and will bear much fruit. He claimed to be from the Father. He claimed to be one with the Father. And he was mocked. He was scorned. He was rejected. He was beaten. He was murdered. And time goes on. And as people see the light of Christ and unite to him, wow, what they find is they find themselves actually to be being filled with the Spirit of God, coming into truth, becoming alive. And as those things happen, Jesus' message is vindicated. And so Christ's glory is displayed in just this way. That's why he's praying for this for us. He's praying for our unity to the end that our unity with one another, our unity with God would serve to vindicate Jesus' claims. Now as we come to verse 24, we see the second uh, second request he's making for us. And this shifts from a focus on the validation of Jesus' claims to a display of God's love. You're going to hear now about the love of God suddenly being mentioned. And we see now that Jesus' glory is displayed as the Father's love for the Son is shared with those that he came to save. His love is spoken of twice in these Last three verses. It's the reason for displaying Jesus' glory. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. And most importantly, verse 26 says that Jesus is revealing God to his people Quote, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them another profound statement for us to try to chew on this afternoon jesus is praying that as the love of the father was in him he's praying that that love would be in us now to understand what jesus is doing here we have to understand something about the nature of god Right? Jesus wants for us to see his glory in verse 24. And the Father has poured glory out on the Son, out of his love for the Son, in verse 24. And in verse 24, Jesus is put on display as a result of that love that the Father has for him. Now, we do something kind of like that. Sometimes. Huh, maybe often. Uh, and we need to understand how what God is doing here is not like what we do. Right? There's a, there are a lot of times, I'll admit it, I do it some too, I try not to as much, but where there's something that I have that I really want, I want you to see. Usually these days it takes the form of video clips. Uh, I won't ask you to raise your hand about how many clips of your kids or your grandkids or maybe kitten videos you have that you love to see and you want to share for others to see. By the way, if you want to know about good kitten videos, he's not here. So you can talk to Dennis Cates. He travels to see kitten videos. So if you want to, if you want to uh, get some, I may not be putting that exactly accurately, but uh, he's not here, so I can I can do that to him. Um, we do that sort of thing, right? There's something that I that I have uh, seen, I love, and I want to share it with you. Now, what do you think happens if I've got a video of one of my kids doing something that I am Bursting about, and I show you, and you say, "Oh, okay," and you hand it back. I didn't just do that because I wanted to share something wonderful with you. I did that out of a deep need of self-validation. There was—I'm really meeting a need in myself, if I'm honest. When isn't that how we work so often? When we do that sort of thing, I want you to understand that that is not how God is. He is not like us in these ways. I show that to you. I'm convinced that you will be blessed on the day that you see it. And uh, I need you to react appropriately. But here's the reality about God and this glory that he, see, that he gives to his son because he loves his son so much. This glory that he puts on display for us to see because he loves his son so much, he wants to display it for us. Here's the truth about this God. All right? Before you or I or anything... Was created. God was perfectly happy and content in His glory. Do you understand that? He had no need for publication, for um, affirmation. He was 100% happy and content in the glory displayed between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The love. Shared. He had no lack of love that he needed someone to fill up in him. There is no such thing in the person of God. And then he created. Now, if he didn't do it for the reasons that we can understand that match us and our needs, our finiteness, well, why did he, why did he do it? And we start to see some amazing realities about the love of God. When we understand Him in that way, we find that in in revealing the Son for us to see, beholding the person of Christ, that, that does not meet a need in God. It meets a need in us. Look again at verse 26. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them as God in Christ displays the glory of his love for us to see and to praise and to bow down before, that sharing itself, far from filling any need in him, is itself a display of free love from God. It was a, it's a reflection of a free choice on his part to love. And in fact, it's nothing less than a sharing of Trinitarian love with his people. God's goal for us as his children is that we would be wrapped up in the love that has been shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity to the glory of his Son for our everlasting enjoyment. This is the God that we worship, the God that we serve. We've, there, there's a catechism question and answer. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And over and over again, our enjoyment of God is spoken of in terms of enjoying his love, the sight of it, the experience of it. Jesus says here that he He will continue to make God's name known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. This is what he desires for us. Two weeks ago when we started this chapter, I said that a principal goal for us in all of John 17 is that the love of the triune God for us in Christ might shine brighter and hotter than it ever has before. And if you're following me this morning, I wonder if you don't just have maybe a bit of a stronger sense of the love of the God who has saved you. A God who saved you for his glory, but not to fill any need in him, saved you as an act of love, Our goal is that as we see Christ, the glorious love of God becomes ours, is experienced by us over and over, more and more, and unto eternity. This is his eternal plan for us, my friends. This is what your future holds. Beholding the glory of God in Christ and being swept into this love that is experienced in the Godhead. Now, if this is true, what is our response to this? And I would just close with three quick um, thoughts for us in light of the reality of what he's just prayed for us here. Our unity to the end of his vindication and his glory and the sharing of the love experienced between Father and Son. If these things are true, I think there are three three words we could use here um, in terms of how we ought to respond. First is rest. Second is share. Third is be jealous. First, rest. My friends, this is our future. Perfect forever. More and more, uh, it is even our present. Because Jesus said in verse 26 that this happens as he continues to make God's name known to us. So as we grow in Christ and as we come to know God better and better through exposure to his word. um, Through his leading us through life circumstances and our ability to look back and to realize just how perfectly He is leading, how good He is. Find the comfort in that. Find the steadiness of the realization that the Father's love for the Son is being brought into your experience. And this is His intent for you. There's true rest available to us in that. Second is share. You may remember the 2 Corinthians chapter 5 calls us ambassadors of Christ. It says in verse 20 there that God is making His appeal To others through us. And that appeal is be reconciled to God. And as we hear God's plan here in Christ, ending with this shared experience of His love, well, that reminds me to be careful how I represent Him as His ambassador, to declare God as the loving Father that He is, the one with whom we must be reconciled lest we suffer eternally but the one who is offering us nothing short of his own love in his Son forever. You might remember verse You might remember verse 21 of that chapter. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember that that is the one who you are serving as an ambassador. And finally, be jealous. What I mean by that is, This is quite a display here of the love of God that he has for us. Be jealous for that love. Come to see sin as that which seeks to cut you off from the experience of God's love that he has wrought for you in Christ. It is our sin that calls God a liar. It's our sin that takes God's good plans for us and calls them oppressive. It's our sin that takes Christ who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and says, he doesn't understand my situation. It's our sin that takes God's law and separates it from the loving lawgiver and calls it evil. It's it's your sin that does those things. And your sin can do nothing at all to distance you from God forensically. There is no condemnation for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. But our sin does much to separate us from the experience of God's love. As you grow in your sense of the love of God, be jealous for that love. Turn to that thing in you that would seek to separate you from it and hate it. Be jealous for this love. Let these things play a role in your thinking as you're being tempted. And what will happen is we'll find ourselves more and more keeping an eternal perspective. And as these things happen in us, As we strive and work in these ways, we look back, we look in, and we realize the Father is doing his work in me. And we're living out the truth of what Jesus said to end his prayer here. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your Son, our righteousness. We thank you for your Son, who is the display of your love, your perfections, your beauty, a display that we can see. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in him. We thank you that he could say to us and mean it, that if we have seen him, we have seen God. Lord, help us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on our Savior as we find him in your word. As we see him at work within us, help us to rejoice as we see him at work in our brothers and sisters. Help us to pour out our love and thankfulness to you for that, to encourage one another. And as we see ourselves or one another, walking away from that, walking into places of sin. Help us to be jealous for the love that you have poured out to us on display in Christ. We thank you for the promise you give us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for our benediction this morning? This out of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. We're dismissed.